we're sitting in the Easter tide season, we can get drawn into two impulses. One to where we want to see the celebration that's coming, but the other is to recognize that in this season, although it's our greatest hope, it's also the moment of the death of God. And so now we want to sit in the text as we move towards this climactic moment in the book of Mark. So reflect with me. In Mark 15, we're going to read 33 to 37. Now when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Around three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, Listen, he is calling to Elijah. Then someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, and put it on a stick, gave it to him to drink, saying, Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. The temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And now pause just said, as we practice it, when we're in person, did a phrase jump out for you? Did, did something grab your attention? If it did within that passage, let that sit in your mind as we go forward. Because as we just saw within this, Jesus on a cross being executed by the state because they fear that he's going to take power from them is seen by some of the people around who have a similar hope for the freedom of Jerusalem from the Roman powers that sit and mock. When they say, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, what they're signaling is that according to the tradition that Jesus is Messiah of, Elijah was going to come and mark that time. They're saying, let's see if it could really happen. But this is the city where God is supposed to inhabit. At the chosen temple where the sacred word and divine presence dwell. Darkness swallowed Jerusalem as their hoped-for king cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is an echo of Psalm 22, which 22.1 says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I groan in prayer, but help seems far away. Jumping down to 19 says, O Lord, do not remain far from me. You are my source of strength. Hurry up and help me. You can hear the animated desperation in that moment of the one who did things right. But it says that the swords have surrounded them. The bulls of Bashan have surrounded that everything has gone against, even though he's been faithful. But the author wants us to experience Jesus' overwhelming desperation in this moment while hearing a faint echo of hope. Because in verse 4 of Psalm 22, the one being persecuted says, Our ancestors trusted. They trusted in you and they were not disappointed. And in verse 25, You are the reason I offer praise. So we see in this moment of desperation of the city being engulfed in darkness, the place to where the light of the world was supposed to dwell, is supposed to spill out of Jerusalem to everyone else, is suddenly midnight at noon. But before we rush to finish the story, before we can say, here's how the end, here's where that hope really becomes tangible, the narrator shifts, and the people gathered around who are mocking Jesus become center stage. 
And just as they're hitting the climax of mocking, saying, give him a drink, ease some of his pain, let's see if God really does anything, the, sh- the scene shifts once more. And the focus moves from the foot of the cross and the people mocking the Messiah who had failed in order to see the temple and the place where God dwells. And it said that as Jesus let out his last breath, the temple curtain was torn in half. And the reveal happens. Because this isn't just any room for us. This is the inner sanctuary of the temple. This is just any moment. This is during their Passover festival. So this is the story of the God who rescues, who set up the temple to where the God of Israel would dwell. And then the curtain, curtain is torn, which is supposed to protect us from the glory and of the light of seeing God. And it's empty. And we see that the temple is hollow as the Messiah is murdered. That thing which was supposed to save us, which guaranteed we will win in the end, was nothing more than a dying man's last breath. And a sacred room stands empty to fulfill any of its promises. What was outside of them, that which they hoped would come in and rescue, they could only be whole if this thing happened, turned out to lack any fecundity, any ability to produce the promised fruit. And so in this moment that they get to witness the death of the hoped-for king, they also get to experience the temple and promise being dead and empty. And this is the ultimate darkness that swallows up the city. And it seems like in these last moments that the hope of the stories they were telling, the hope of the Elijah to come, the hope of in this time the Passover feast where they celebrated that the God who showed up when we were in Egypt will show up again today with Rome, was breathing its last breath. And so we're invited into that tension where I don't know how you've experienced God or what you hoped for. I don't know what part of outside of you that this thing to come that you're going to say, it would only be good if, however you'd finish that line. But the moment you realize that the hope dies and the temple was empty, the moment you could no longer pretend that that shroud guarded something sacred other than an empty room, you're invited to sit in that moment and hold on to it right now while you get to cry out the words of Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, we are spiritual nomads, wandering and restless. Allow this story, this conversation, this community to help us find home in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Trembling and bewildered, The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is how the earliest versions of the gospel according to Mark end. If you have your Bible and you turn to Mark chapter 16, you'll see after verse 8 that there's an annotation right before it goes into the remaining verses of 9 through 20. Because 9 through 20 weren't part of the earliest manuscripts. They weren't part of the earliest versions of the gospel of Mark. So naturally that leads us to ask the question, why are they there now? And how did they end up being part of Mark? These alternate endings of Mark 
are most likely summaries added by scribal insertions, meaning that the community saw fit to add these endings to the Gospel of Mark. And one of the reasons that people way smarter than me think that the people transcribing Mark added these extra verses in various forms is because they were uncomfortable with just ending with the mystery of the empty tomb. But that is how Mark decides to end his gospel. That's how Mark ends. Mark ends with an empty tomb, three women, two Marys, and one Salome, running away and saying nothing. Mark leaves with the mystery that the reader is meant to sit and ponder. So what does the empty tomb mean? We are given a simple proclamation by a young man Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The empty tomb witnessed, according to the young man, that Jesus, who was crucified, laid to rest, had now risen. So Jesus was crucified but is now alive is the crux of the Christian hope. You could say it's what we hang our hat on. It is not just one of the things that Christians believe. It is not a doctrinal statement, but rather it is meant to be a reality that is encountered. We, just like the three women in Mark, we find ourselves standing in front of an empty tomb. And the same proclamation is made to us today. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. How many of you have heard the saying, he is risen, to which the response is, he is risen indeed, right? This is a saying that we often say during like the Easter season or during Easter services in church communities gathered around the world. But in the early church, in communities that formed through the first through the fourth, uh, first through fourth centuries, this was the formal greeting that Christians greeted each other with. Much like how Muslims around the world today greet each other with a particular phrase in response, right? Like, assalamu alaikum, to which the response is, walaikum salam, meaning peace be upon you, to the response being, and upon you be peace. In this way, the greeting, he has risen, confronted Christians continually with the reality of the empty tomb, with the hope of the risen Christ. We need to be reminded of the young man's proclamation that Jesus has risen, In the midst of uncertainty, we need to be reminded that Jesus is risen. When things seem hopeless, we need to be reminded that Jesus is risen. In the midst of social distancing and isolation, we need to be reminded that Jesus is risen. What we get at the end of the Gospel of Mark after the empty tomb is a community formed around the empty tomb, summarizing its encounter with the risen Christ. These verses are the early church saying, this is what the empty tomb meant to us. So the empty tomb meant for the first followers of Jesus, people have been freed from demonic possession. People have spoken in new tongues in order to share and hear that Jesus is risen indeed. People have been bitten by poisonous snakes and have not died. Remember Paul. People have been consumed by, have consumed poison, but have not been hurt by it. People have laid their hands on the sick and they have been made whole. These are the stories of encountering the risen Christ that these first followers decided to record and make sure were transmitted to us here and now. So what are the stories of encountering the risen Christ that we have in our communities around us now? What are the stories that we are telling that show that Jesus is risen indeed?
That's the question that we, we find ourselves when we stand in front of the empty tomb. We begin to ask these questions of ourselves. We begin to ask these questions of our community. And this is one of those places where if you have the opportunity to come back after, then, I, then I'd like you to pause with that question. What are your stories of encountering the risen Christ? Because those are going to be the entrance points for other people to begin to see Christ risen around them. So with that said, what is the empty tomb? The empty tomb was a proclamation that Jesus, who was crucified and buried, was now risen. The empty tomb is about life being formed from the murky depths of death. The, de the empty tomb is about God hovering over the face of chaos and the void bringing forth life. The empty tomb is about an oppressed creation being filled with promise and possibility of forming a new place, a new people, a new community, a new creation. If the chaos is the potential for life, then the empty tomb is the potential for new life. The empty tomb is about new creation being shaped and sustained by the promise of the risen Christ. The risen Christ is the possibility of new creation. The risen Christ is the possibility that everything is made new. The risen Christ is the possibility that everything has changed. If chaos, the void, is the raw material of creation, then the empty tomb is the, and the void found there, the risen Christ, is the raw material of new creation. And I would say this is our hope. This is what the church is about, testifying to the fact that we have looked into the empty tomb and we have encountered the risen Christ there. Our hope is that others will be like us and encounter the risen Christ when they peer into the empty tomb by sharing their stories like the early church did of encountering the risen Christ. And when we do this, we spread hope. If we can look into the empty tomb and encounter Jesus there, so can others. So like Glenn said earlier about the empty temple, it echoes into the empty tomb as both remind us that it's about God being present 